0: Hey, it's Rachel. Way before I started hosting shows for NPR, I was a reporter on the national security beat. And as part of that, I talked with dozens of active duty service members and veterans who were trying to find their way through the trauma of war, the violence they had witnessed, and the killing they did themselves in combat. Things have changed a lot over the last 20 years. Today, there's far less stigma attached to PTSD and way more help available for combat vets. But there are other government employees who are also required to take the lives of others, but without much support or mental health resources. These are the workers who are involved with executions in state prisons and for the federal government. Today on Up for Sunday, we're gonna get a rare glimpse into that kind of work, the people who did it and the consequences it has had on their lives. Stay with us.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor, SmartWool. Our greatest adventures can't be gift-wrapped, but the SmartWool gear that makes them possible can. From award-winning Merino wool base layers to must-have accessories and socks, the magic of Merino will keep your loved ones warm and cozy all season long. Whether you're shopping for the all-day explorer or the late-night bonfire starter, find the perfect Merino gift for every adventurer on your list. Enjoy 15% off your first purchase when you sign up for SmartWolz mailing list.
0: I'm Rachel Martin. This is Up First Sunday. NPR investigative reporter Kiara Eisner has spent a year and a half tracking down people involved in executions and listening to them reflect on the toll their jobs have taken on their physical and mental health as you've figured out by now, this episode is going to be hard to hear for some folks. And we're going to talk about some of the details of how an execution is carried out. I'm joined now by Kiara Eisner. Hey, Kiara. Hi, Rachel. So of all the things one could report on, how did you come across this story in the first place?
1: Well, I was reporting in South Carolina at the time when the legislature there approved the firing squad as its newest method of legal execution, and that came as quite a shock. I think a firing squad is not something we think about very much in the 21st century. Yeah, I have to say that I didn't even know that,
0: and that takes me by surprise, an actual firing squad.
1: Yeah, and it was the newest method of execution that had been approved, you know, that came after lethal injection. Hmm. And the reason they did it was because it's been hard to get drugs for lethal injection and they were trying to find, you know, what some members there considered a more humane method. But I think a lot of people had questions about what this was going to be like And I was curious about what it was going to be like for the people who would have to hold the gun and have that job. You know, who do they pick for the job of being on a firing squad and what's that like for them afterwards? How do they deal with that? And the best way that I thought to kind of answer that question was to try to find people who had done it before in that state. So I started finding and talking with as many former execution workers as I could to understand the situation there and their experiences. And this is not an experience that these folks had talked about with others? Yes. They were not used to talking about this. I was the first person a lot of them talked to. They hadn't mentioned it to a counselor. A lot of them hadn't even told their families about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really wanted to know whether what happened to them and how they were feeling and dealing with this and how little help they got, whether that was just a South Carolina thing or were these kinds of experiences common in all of the states where executions have happened, you know, even in states like California or Oregon or Indiana. And I wanted to understand how everyone who was somehow involved in this kind of work was affected, not just the executioner.
0: So what did that mean for the scope of your reporting?
1: So all in all, I managed to interview 26 people, and those 26 were involved with more than 200 executions across 17 states and the federal government, which has its own death chamber in Indiana. I mean, you mentioned the fact that for many of these people, they
0: just hadn't talked a lot about what this experience is like for them. Was it easy to get permission to talk to them?
1: So that's a great question. When these people are employed by departments of corrections, the ones who are employed by prisons, sometimes those states have laws that prohibit their names from being revealed. Mm. So while they're employed, it would be often against the law for them to talk to a reporter like me, or even Mm -hmm. some of them feel like it would be against the law for them to talk to anyone, which is part of the reason there's so little discussion about this. After they leave their jobs and they retire or they change to something else, they can talk about it, but a lot of them still choose not to because of the shame that some of them feel because of just how unusual a job it is. A lot of them feel like who's going to understand what it's like to press a button that kills somebody Mm -hmm. when there's no similar job. It's it's a very strange thing that a lot of them have been asked to do. And I think it's difficult for some of them to talk about it because they're unsure how the public is going to take it.
0: Yeah. So introduce me to some of the folks you met who do this work.
1: So there are lots of people involved at every stage of an execution. There were a lot of lawyers who were involved from the start. You've got public defenders who represent the people charged with murder. And those are the people who have to present these cases to the court and then deal with that, quote-unquote, godly responsibility of feeling like they've got somebody's life in their hands, as one of these lawyers told me. Mm. And there are other kinds of lawyers who have different roles to play. There's a law clerk who has to monitor everything that's filed in the last days leading up to an execution. So up until the absolute very last minute, the whole thing can be called off. And if that happens— it's the law clerk's job to tell the prison in time to save the person who is about to be executed. And Laura Briggs had that job in Indiana. Here's how she described it to me. Of those of us who were involved with it, none of us could sleep very well because you just felt at any minute something could happen. I just had no brain cells really left for anything other than worrying that I or someone else was going to miss something, screw something up. I don't know. It felt like being suspended in,
0: like burning oil. Wow. I mean, I'm just trying to absorb that because that's a job I had not thought of. You know, it's easier to conjure the person who takes the last action that ends someone's life. But I'd never thought of that person in that bureaucracy who has to race to relay information that could save a person's life at the last second and the pressure of that.
1: Yeah, And it actually happened for her. The case that she was working on, the person ended up being exonerated. And she had this experience of realizing that if she had missed that, that person's life would have been on her. Huh. And, you know, she didn't even work inside a prison. Then you've got everyone who did jobs inside. And those were people like Caterino Escobar, who was a corrections officer in Nevada. He volunteered to be the person that the other staff practiced on when they were rehearsing how they would execute the prisoner who was scheduled to die there in the next few days.
0: Oh, my.
2: The team that was in charge of bringing the inmate, they're the ones who handcuffed me. And I'm just playing along, so they got me out of the cell, walked me into the execution chamber, and when I walked in there, something happened, and it was so real that the environment within the gas chamber changed. I started thinking of my mom, I started thinking of my brothers, I believed that I was being executed, I was the inmate, I wasn't acting or playing no longer. I can't imagine.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it was hard for me to imagine, too, until I visited that gas chamber in Carson City, Nevada. And you can start to realize what it would be like when you see this place. It's... Tell me. It's tiny. It's about the size of a bathroom stall. And it's surrounded by huge glass windows on every side. And those are there so that witnesses can sit outside the gas chamber and watch the person inside suffocating to death on the lethal gas. Now, by the time Escobar was escorted inside the gas chamber, Nevada wasn't executing people with gas anymore. It was using lethal injection. But they still put people in that same room where more than 20 people had died before. They just added a gurney there.
0: And they have to have a real person do this? I mean, despite the obvious trauma that would it cause?
1: Well, I don't know if they have to, but a lot of states do this. This is something that I heard from many states, that there were these people who had to pretend to be the person about to die. So the intention for that is that the staff who are going to have to escort the person who's about to be executed, you know, they just want to make sure that they know what they're going to do and they know how to strap this person Mm -hmm. down. And so, yeah, there's a team in a lot of these states that rehearses sometimes many, many times before an execution. And somebody has to be the one who lies on that gurney. In this case, it was Escobar.
0: Wow. So those are all the folks that are involved leading up to someone's execution. And, and then there are people who are still involved in all of this after that moment, right?
1: Yes. So once the person dies, you've got people from uh, the funeral team who have to take care of his body. You've got people who have to bury it. And you've got people like a radiologist who I spoke to. He actually worked on somebody who had been executed in Delaware after the fact.
2: The pathologist who was involved, he comes up to me and he says, I have to do an autopsy on this guy who's going to be executed by hanging. Could you arrange for an MRI and a CT scan of his neck to be done?
0: To make sure that it was done correctly?
1: It's hard to know for sure, but that might be the case, that
0: it was done for legal reasons. So this is another job someone has to do, is, is, is actually conduct these autopsies. Yes. Which in and of itself is another kind of very stressful work.
1: It can be. And this radiologist actually hung on to those scans for years, and he showed me the copies. He had them. He still had them years later. Hmm. But I want to make something clear with him. Not all of the workers I spoke to had the same kinds of experience after working on executions. And this radiologist in particular was one of those who told me that that job didn't bother him very much at all. And he didn't think about it long afterwards, and it wasn't something that stayed on his mind. So it wasn't everybody, but most of the people I talked to said that working on executions was the most stressful part of their jobs, and many of them told me that it was the worst part of their lives. So this radiologist was in the minority.
0: Did you talk to these folks about what their expectations were going into these jobs? I mean, did they think they could just kind of compartmentalize their way
1: through it? I don't think any of them knew what they were getting into. Uh, I talked to some psychologists who told me that the human brain just isn't prepared for this kind of work. We're not prepared to watch people die or be involved in that. And I think for a lot of them, it was made more difficult by the fact that the job came as a surprise. So some states hadn't executed anyone in decades. So some of the workers that ended up having to be involved, they had signed up for their job in the prison with absolutely no expectation that this would be something that they'd have to do. Hmm. And sometimes people ask me, well, couldn't these people just have quit? And the answer to that is, of course, sure, they could have just quit. But if you think about this realistically, and you try to put yourself in their shoes... Let's say you're the warden of a prison and your job, your whole job, is to coordinate everything that goes on inside there. Nobody knows the staff better than you. Nobody knows how it works better than you. All of a sudden, you're told there's an execution scheduled and you imagine it's probably going to be incredibly stressful for your staff. Is that really the moment where you're going to choose to quit? That moment when everybody is looking at you for leadership just because you're Mm -hmm. not quite sure how it's going to make you feel? Yeah. It's just not very realistic. And a lot of them figured that, well, if I quit, they're just going to hire somebody to replace me anyway. And that person might do a worse job than I would. So a lot of them stayed in their positions, even though they maybe would have preferred to quit. And one thing that really surprised me in this reporting and really kind of still stays with me is that More than one person told me that the reason why they kept doing the job was because they wanted to spare another worker from having to suffer. So they kept doing it to protect someone else, someone else on the team from being involved.
0: That's something, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's just not what you would imagine when you think of the stereotype of an execution worker. You're thinking of this hardened person, and a lot of times these people kept going back into the death chamber just to protect somebody else from having to suffer from what they had already gone through. One man I met who talked about why he started was Craig Baxley. He was an executioner in South Carolina— His job was to press the button on the electric chair or to push lethal drugs into people's veins with a plunger. Here's how he explained his situation
2: to me. If you don't do this, you won't get the job. So, you know, most of us are not making that much money in South Carolina, that type thing. We're getting a raise. We're getting that. So most of us go going to say, okay, you know, I'll try it. And then you try it and it's too late.
0: Right. That becomes the work and they need the work and the stability that comes with that job. Did he talk about, though, how working as an executioner changed him over the years, or if it did?
1: Yes. Craig helped carry out 10 executions over a period of a few years. And during that time, he told me his personality changed. He used to be somebody who told jokes and was a happy guy. After doing this, after the first time he did it, He became depressed. He became suicidal. He started having insomnia. He had terrible nightmares. And it wasn't just emotional or mental. He actually went to the gastroenterologist three times because his stomach was so knotted and Mm. felt so painful. And this doctor told him, you know, we don't know what's wrong with you. It's probably just the stress. Craig started abusing alcohol. He stopped going to church for a long time because he felt like he was a killer.
2: There's a difference in in the killing of a person like this than shooting in a war because they're firing at you and you're firing back. Here, every single one of the death certificates says state-assisted homicide, and the state was me. Wow. And we've
0: talked about people who are more removed from the process, right? And and that wasn't his situation. And he draws the parallel. On a battlefield, you can kind of distance yourself and it, someone else is shooting you too. And this, this is just totally different, the intimacy of it.
1: Yeah, for him, there was, you know, you can't excuse anything away. At the end of the day, he was the one who pushed the button and pushed the drugs. But what was interesting was that Of those 26 people that I spoke with, only two of them were executioners like Baxley. But still, most of the workers said that they also suffered serious mental and physical consequences that were actually extremely similar to what Craig described to me. Here's a bit of what they told me they suffered.
2: For several months there, I was pretty fragile. Staff have gone to alcoholism, drug addiction, considered suicide.
0: Weight loss and weight gain, hair loss, irritability for sure. I went through this really long period of having insomnia. You realize that you're suffering
2: from post-traumatic stress.
0: You're listening to Up First Sunday. We'll be right back. I'm Rachel Martin, and we're back with Up First Sunday, and my conversation with NPR investigative reporter Kiara Eisner, We were just talking about the physical and mental consequences that these execution workers have experienced.
1: Yes. But beyond those physical and mental symptoms that they described, a lot of them mentioned moral injuries as well.
0: So explain what that means, a moral injury.
1: So a moral injury is this psychology term. It describes an injury to your belief system, to how you regard yourself as a human being, to what you believe is right and wrong. I talked to Dr. Joseph Currier, who's a psychologist that studies veterans at the University of South Alabama. He explained it to me like this.
0: A profound sense of guilt and shame that because of what I did, I can no longer trust myself to be part of the human family. I no longer am worthy of being loved, receiving love. I no longer feel human. Wow, that would have huge consequences for someone.
1: Yeah. And it's something that's pretty common and well-studied among veterans who have tough responsibilities abroad and have to deal with that when they come back home. But Courier and other psychologists I talked to said that nobody's really looked at this moral injury among execution workers. Um, But with the people I spoke with, the 26 that I found, they constantly brought up classic symptoms of moral injury. And they didn't name it like that. They didn't have the vocabulary to call it moral injury. But what they described to me again and again was this feeling of being very burdened by the weight of failing to prevent or having been involved in what ended up feeling to many of them like murder. And this is how Bill Breeden, the religious minister, put it.
2: Sometimes I wake up in the death chamber, in a sense. All of a sudden, you can see it again. You can feel it again. And you can't do anything to stop it. And so, in a sense, you kind of get this feel, well, I'm validating this process. And to be standing there totally incapable of of doing anything while this man is murdered was just the most painful thing I've ever had in my life.
1: And I want to point out here, Bill Breeden was a religious minister who worked in the federal death chamber. He volunteered to be there. He was not employed by the state. He was there to support the person being executed. But he still, even him, even he felt this kind of complicity, this strong responsibility for having been involved and not being able to stop that. And I think for a lot of them, that was one of the reasons they haven't spoken about this before. But that isolation, that not talking about it with anyone, that often makes it worse for them. So Katerino Escobar, who was the correctional officer from Nevada, he told me that he's never told his family, his wife, his siblings, anything about his involvement in executions, they all found out for the very first time after the story aired on All Things Considered.
2: But if you don't tell them, you're going to be quiet, and your wife is going to ask you, what's wrong? You're going to say, nothing. So you're building a big ice barrier between you and your family.
0: Hmm. I mean, in some ways, you can kind of get that, right? They don't want to burden the people around them or prioritize their own pain in this situation from this work. But at the, at the same time, they have to have a place where they can talk about it, right? I mean, is there, are there resources for them?
1: So veterans have resources. Veterans have free lifelong access to health care and specific psychology support services. But these execution workers really do not have anything comparable I spoke to Amanda Hernandez from the Texas Department of Criminal Justice about what Texas offers its execution workers. If you're specifically referring
0: to those that work executions, then EAP is what we have available.
1: So that EAP service that she's talking about there, some states only have that. EAP stands for Employee Assistance Program, And it's basically a couple of free counseling sessions that are offered to any state employee. So that means these execution workers aren't getting a... Specially trained counselor or somebody who knows anything about what that might have been like. They're just getting the same number of free sessions and the same counselor who's trained to talk to the state's tax accountant who, you know, might want to use the AP to talk about something like their recent divorce. It's not Mm -hmm. the same. And there are some states and the federal government that say that they train fellow corrections officers in basic trauma responses, and then they tell their workers, you know, if you need to talk to somebody, you can call on one of your colleagues, and they're trained to help you out. But there are many reasons why those programs just don't fit the problem here from what the workers told me and what psychologists said. For one, there's that issue of shame and anonymity. So these workers don't want to talk to their colleagues Mm -hmm. about this. That's the whole point. They can't even bring themselves to tell their wives about what they did. And the other thing is that these programs are optional, meaning no one has to receive the help and people can avoid it if they want. In the end, that's what most of them did. Out of the 26 people that I talked to, only one of them ever received any kind of counseling from the government, even if it was available. And those people who I talked to who had the option but didn't go said that they felt like they didn't want to seem emotional or weak. They didn't want to kind of expose themselves in that circle as somebody who couldn't take it. Here's Jeannie Woodford, the warden from California, about why she didn't seek help.
0: You know, you have to be like The Rock. I think your team, your staff are looking at you and they're saying, okay, if she's good with it, then I need to be good with it too. And that's what you tell yourself. But were they all good with it? It sounds like you talked to several of these people who ended up changing their mind about executions, state executions, the death penalty.
1: Yes, that was quite striking. A lot of the workers I talked to went into these jobs. In full support of the death penalty, they felt like in some situations it was warranted and that some people really deserved this ultimate punishment. But out of all of those whose jobs required them to actually witness the executions in the death chamber, and that was most of the people I interviewed, none of them came out of that role supporting capital punishment, not one. And they often said that that change was because they saw how hard it was on them and their fellow coworkers.
2: That was the most difficult month of my life, I guess, that period of time between the service of the death warrant and the actual execution. That bothered me to the extent that I changed my position on the death penalty
1: if you're on the fence
0: or maybe a little bit against the death penalty, and then you have to see this cadre of people
1: preparing this person for death. It's just sickening. But it wasn't just them. It was often their families, too. So I spoke to somebody called Holly Socks. She supported the death penalty until it was her dad, who was the prison nurse in South Carolina, who had to work in the death chamber. After the first execution, he was just withdrawn. Um, He was always happy, always outgoing, but it was just definitely subdued afterward. And uh, they lose something in their humanity, something from their soul is lost. I think that it's great on paper, but Nobody stops to think about, you know, somebody has to carry it out. Somebody has to be the one. Hmm.
0: So, as we talked about, these people really haven't been public about the work they do. They haven't even told many of their family members. What has been the response to your reporting so far?
1: So... I've talked to many of them afterwards just to check in and make sure they're okay. And I think for a lot of them, you know, at the end of the day, this is what they needed, right? They they are kind of craving somebody to talk to. They're craving the ability to hear that they're not the only one who went through this. And so Escobar, I was on the phone with him the other day. He told me that hearing for the very first time that all of these other people in different states, and different roles, went through similar things as him. That's made him feel a lot less alone. A lot of listeners and readers said that this reporting has helped them think about a side of capital punishment that they hadn't considered before. And, you know, in Alabama, the governor there announced last month that she's asking the state to pause executions. And that's directly related to the fact that Alabama has tried twice in the past two months to execute people, and they haven't been able to do it. The workers weren't able to place the IV lines correctly. But representatives also said that they were going to take that chance to review how the state trains and prepares workers. And that came after this piece was published. What is
0: the status of the death penalty in other states?
1: So 27 states still have the death penalty on the books. That includes the ones that have moratoriums like Alabama, because technically those executions are paused. They're not banned entirely. In November, there were five executions that happened in Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, and Arizona. This month, both Idaho and Mississippi are scheduled to carry out executions. And In the previous administration, during the administration of former President Donald Trump, the federal government executed 13 people. That's significant because before that, the federal government hadn't executed anyone in the previous 17 years. So executions are definitely still happening pretty frequently, and workers are still being asked to do these kinds of jobs.
0: NPR's Kiara Eisner. Kiara, thank you so much for all this reporting. Thank you, Rachel, for talking with me. NPR's investigations team is still reporting on executions. If you have been involved in some way, especially in a recent execution this year, you can email executionworkers at npr.org. This episode was produced by Meg Anderson with help from Justine Yan. It was edited by Barry Hardiman. Audio engineering by Kwesi Lee. Leanna Simstrom is our supervising producer. Our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. I'm Rachel Martin. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news you need to start your week. Until then, have a great rest of your Sunday.